nice? So I don't know what like the sermon writing process is for Matt and Debbie, but for me, a really like necessary part of my process is to talk it over with my husband, John. So this week we had, um, we had a day date uh, to Buffalo Wild Wings at the Mall of America. And um, we, we had just placed our order and uh, he spreads his hands out on the table and he goes, um, all right, so tell me what your sermon's gonna be about. So I sit there and I talk to him for like, I don't know, five minutes, 10 minutes. There it is. And uh, at the end, his eyes were glazed over, and he goes, I feel like you just told me a book report. And I was like, all right, back to the drawing board then. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you that tonight's sermon is round two, and I hope that it's not a book report, honey. <clears throat> Anyways, so I have the somewhat mountainous task of wrapping up the series that we've been in, which is called Should I Stay or Should I Go? It's based off of this little book, Do I Stay Christian? by Brian McLaren. And uh, I, as you know, I am the social media person here at the church, and I have come to realize that some people follow us on our social media just so that they can get riled up by our sermon series. <laughs> and they mostly don't sound off in the comments, but I think that Matt sometimes gets emails. Right, Matt? Have you got an email before? Yeah. So some people feel threatened by a series like this because they say, you know, why, why would a church ask a question like that and essentially, you know, like open a door that somebody might actually walk out of? And then some other people were just a little skeptical, like, oh, sure, your church is doing a series called Why Should I Stay a Christian? Oh, okay, yeah, like, like hey, the answer might just be yes. So anyways, um, I think those people are also some of the same people who, like, get really nervous about the word deconstruction. So anyways, um, we have been doing the series, and I have to tell you that it isn't rhetorical for us. It's not metaphorical for us. Like, you look around this room and there are people who used to sit here in these pews next to us and they're not here because they have contended with this question. And for them, it's a no. And they, out of fidelity to the journey that they are on, they're not here with us tonight. So for us, it's a real serious question. And our goal with this series was the same as Brian McLaren's goal with this book. And it was never to push you towards like a predetermined answer. It was just to give you space to come to the answer on your own and as long as you have found an answer that you can live with wholeheartedly and with integrity and intention and an open heart, um, that is what we want for you. So uh, out of curiosity, and there's no competition in the church, has anyone read this book that we have been going through the series on? Okay, a couple hands, but all of you people who didn't raise your hand, you're my people. Because I hadn't read the book either until Debbie asked me to preach. So I have to tell you, though, that this book is one of the most um, generous, uh, kind, open-hearted books on Christian living that I have ever read. And not just Christian living either, I, mean, I just mean like, living like a human in the year 2022. Um, so it is, um, yeah, it's, it's been really, it's been a really great read. And I really encourage you, if you are a person who's like wrestling with these questions, this is a great read. Um, so the, basically there's three parts to this book. Part one to the, to the question, do I say Christian? Part one was no. And part two was yes. And part three is how. And it's not how do you stay Christian? It's just regardless of how you answer that question, how are you gonna move forward? How are you going to be a human? How, how are we going to do this together? So McLaren has a really kind and gracious answer to this question of staying a Christian. This is, you guys, are you seeing this? This is going to be really fun. Um, so 
uh, his response to the question is, I don't really care if you stay a Christian. And I am here tonight to tell you that I'm not sure I agree with him. So buckle up, everybody. Um, Okay, so let me just explain a little bit. I talk often and openly about my background. I was raised in a charismatic tradition here in American evangelicalism. Um, I had, oh, you're the best. Thanks, Christian. No, it's this cool. Thank you. Okay, so the the tradition I was raised in had me um, really nervous because I carried this weight on me that everybody I met, every friend, every classmate, every teacher, every um, delivery person, that their eternity was my responsibility, and that is a really heavy weight to put on a small child. Um, I thought that the way to do this was I was going to stand firm in my convictions, and if I never swayed, then people would start to ask me questions about the way that I lived, and that eventually I'd be able to pray the sinner's prayer with them. And that was, that was how I lived the first part of my life. I was worried about questions like, um, oh, I saw in the news that this famous Christian committed egregious sins. Were they really ever a Christian in the first place? These are the kinds of questions I worried about. Um, when loved ones would pass, I would think, was there enough evidence of salvation in their life so that I can know they're spending eternity in the good place? This is what I worried about. In the tradition in which I was raised, um, that tradition cares a lot whether or not you stay a Christian. And um, Brian McLaren's probably a heretic in that tradition, too. So to say this book was challenging for me is an understatement. Um, and hopefully you can see that based on the tradition I came out of. Uh, McLaren has really reached this point where he can genuinely say he doesn't care. Um, but I'm not all the way there, to be honest. I do still care, but here's, how, here's the way I care. I care in the way that I care about you as individuals. And I care about this community, the kind of community we're trying to build together. Um, I like to use a word picture, the idea that um, sometimes I feel like Christianity was handed to me and it's just a ball of string that's got a ton of knots in it. And I have to untangle those knots because somewhere in this ball is Jesus. And so it's really important work and I really care about it. Um, but for me and maybe for you, um, Jesus is worth the work of disentangling all the knots. But I am not done, and I'm nowhere near done, and I'm still working at it. And so I hope that you can hear my heart when I say that um, I don't want to see you or anyone else throw out the whole ball of string because they're frustrated by the work of disentangling. I hope that you feel safe enough that you can come here week after week, and you can bring your doubts, bring your struggles, bring your questions, bring your knots, as it were, and be among people who have also brought theirs. This, I hope, is a safe place where you can experience belonging even if you're experiencing doubt. So regardless of where you are on your journey, whether you're feeling certain or not, there are two things that we can do as we move forward together after this whole series, and it is to stay human and to stay in community. The question of our humanity uh, really leads us to two key scripture passages, and I want to look at two of them tonight. Matt, first slide. The first one is this one. It's Micah 6.8. You probably have seen this on like a graphic tee or like a vinyl wall decal somewhere. It's gotten a lot of popularity in the last few years. It's often translated this way. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? <clears throat> so the prophet Micah lived in really interesting times. 
He grew up in a farming community outside of Jerusalem, and a lot of his um, prophecies were aimed at the leaders of the large cities near him, those being Jerusalem and Samaria. And here, in those cities, the leaders had gotten really caught up in like a classic misunderstanding of who God is. And if you don't understand the character of God, it, you won't be treating other people well. And these leaders weren't. They were upholding unjust business practices, and they were um, mistreating uh, the poor, uh, women and children, orphans, widows, the outcast. And it was just not a good time to be on the outskirts of society because um, it was a time of a lot of injustice and suffering. So the context of this chapter of Micah is the Lord reminding Micah, look what I have done for my people. I've taken them out of slavery in Egypt, and I've brought them here. And Micah asks in verse 6, next slide, Matt, with what should I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? The next one. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Do I have to offer up my firstborn? Do I have to give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then verse 8. He's shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Micah takes a really religious question, what does God want of me, and turns it into a really human question. So it wouldn't be a sermon by me if we don't go back to the Hebrew. So humor me here. The very first word I want to look at is this word, oh man. And that man word, next slide, there we go. The man word is Adam in Hebrew. And it's, it's collective humanity. It's all of all people, not just men. Our second word is, he's shown you, oh man, what is good. And that's the word tov. You've probably heard us talk about it a lot. This is a very small word with like infinite possibilities. Tov is good like a seed that drops out of a tree, plants into the ground, and stems a whole orchard. It good that gives more life. So it's not good like I had a really good meal. It's good like uh, when you model inclusion to your children and then they turn around and they welcome other people in. That's good. It's good like a conversation that I had six years ago with a pastor who called out in me a gift of teaching adults, men and women. And it set me on a path that I did not grow up thinking was going to be possible for me inside the church. That's good. Good is Pastor Jay setting an example for our kids here a couple of weeks ago that they are full and complete members of this community. They get to help serve, they get to partake in communion. They get to serve together. They get to be part of this community, not in like a seen and not heard kind of way, but in like a the future of the church kind of a way. That's good. That is tove. That's with the potential of more life. The next word I want to look at is requires. What does the Lord require of you? It's this Hebrew word doresh. And it's sometimes translated like cares for, like how God cares about the promised land, but it's also translated as to seek after the way that humans seek after God, the way that God searches us, looking for our desires, our thoughts. And then this word, mishpat, you've probably also heard. So it is translated as justice, but sometimes also just like our way of doing things. It is our standard. Mishpat in modern Hebrew is just their word for law. It's the way that they, they practice law. And hopefully there is um, a sense of treating everybody equitably kind of wound up in that word. And then this one, chesed. I love that guttural, chesed. It's, uh, it's mercy, but it's not, it's not human mercy. 
This is the loving kindness of God to God's people over a thousand generations. This is the kind of mercy that doesn't end, and it's unconditional. I looked at every occurrence of this word in the Old Testament. It's 66 times, and it's almost always attributed to God. So this is God's unchanging, good, merciful love. And then our last one, to humble yourself, vehatznea. It literally means to lower oneself. And it's um, the infinitive absolute, which I love because I'm an English major and I love verb tenses. So the infinitive absolute is used to intensify the verb. How do you walk with your God? Humbly. You lower yourself. It's an ongoing way, the way that you approach your life. So in light of all of that Hebrew, I'd like to offer you my own paraphrase of what this verb could, or what this verse could sound like. He's made it plain to you, O human, what produces life and the potential for life? What does the Lord care about and search out within you to make justice your way of living, to make loving kindness your way of approaching others, and to make humility your way of walking on your journey? That's our goal. This is our goal. Whether, how, regardless of how you answer the question, do I stay Christian, this can be your goal as you just set out to be human. A couple of weeks ago, Matt reminded us that uh, humility is also a means of staying human. He talked about Mephibosheth, who had to have the humility to ask for help. The way that we accept help, the way that we offer help, the way that we carry each other, the way that we ask to be carried and allow ourselves to be carried, all of that is part of our humanity. When I think about what it means to stay human, especially this time of year, my mind often goes to Mary, the mother of Jesus, Tonight is actually the start of Advent, um, and so in my own small way, I'd like to kind of give us a little bridge between the end of this series and the start of our Advent series. Mary speaks to what it means to be human in a poem that we now call the Magnificat. It, it's Latin for to magnify. What, whatever you kind of thought about Mary, whatever I thought about Mary, it was really like she was a teenager who was quiet and unassuming, and she obeyed God even though it was really risky, risky and costly. But then I, um, I met and I started following the work of D.L. Mayfield. <clears throat> she's an activist and an author. She used to be based here, and now she's in Portland. And for the first time, she really helped me to hear Mary's song here. In the first chapter of Luke, Mary is rejoicing in God's goodness. She praises him but because he's done great things, and then she gets specific. Here's the next one, Matt. Why does she magnify the Lord? Because of these actions. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. What a rebel, right? Like, you go, Mary. Like, talk about speaking truth to power. God is the one who's upsetting the status quo. He is bringing down rulers and he's bringing up the humble. In this song, we find out that Mary's actually kind of a radical and she is deeply acquainted with this God who cares about justice and cares about the exploitation of the oppressed and all of those kinds of um, unjust systems. Mary says that what matters is the very human experience of being humble enough to receive that kind of mercy. She was poor, she was unmarried, and God sees Mary as she is and invites her into this deeper story. A couple years ago, we, um, we did an Advent series by Scott Erickson, and we, it was called Honest Advent. 
And in it, he writes that all great stories come at a cost. As that um, classic, perhaps somewhat overplayed Christmas song wonders, Mary, did you know? Um, that agreeing to be God's accomplice in this deepening story, that it was costly, which, you know, side note, yeah, she knew. Go ahead and read Luke 1. She knew. We see that when Mary agrees to literally carry God's love into the world, it, it transforms everything about what she probably thought her life was going to be. What she thought her wedding would be like. What her first kid's name would be. How people would think about her and her family and the community in which she was going to live. How her kids' lives would turn out. So now, apply that to your own life. I think that her transformation can look a lot like what ours might be. Following Jesus might make you an outcast in certain circles. And for some of us, that is no big deal. You're like, I never wanted to belong to that anyways. But for some of us, it's a big sacrifice. If you choose to stay Christian, if you follow Jesus into this kind of expansive, inclusive faith, you might find yourself now on the outskirts. Maybe your theology is rejected by your family. Maybe you're cast out of certain communities. Maybe you've got broken relationships with people that you used to do life with. Jesus knew that sacrifice was going to be part of following him. He warned his followers when they left their families. But remember, Jesus didn't come to like make a new religion. He already had a religion. He was a Jew. He just came to invite people into community. And he knew that some people would choose not to do it. He loves them anyways. I think of the rich young ruler with this. It's this man who's got great wealth, and he comes to Jesus and he says, um, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you got to keep all the commandments, 400 and some. And the young man says, I have. I have since I was very young. He's really bringing me the firstborn energy here, and I am here for it. And Jesus says, okay, well, just one more thing. Um, take everything that you have, sell it, and then give, give all the proceeds to the poor. And it says that he goes away sad. The rich young ruler goes away sad because he was holding tight to a lot of things. He wasn't about to let them go. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> In verse 27, Jesus says that if you think that you can pull it all off by yourself, you don't have any chance. But if you let God do it, you've got every chance in the world. So for those who did choose to follow Jesus, did it require sacrifice? You bet it did. But it was never meant to be done alone. Jesus didn't ask people to go, you know, go on your own individual journey, leave everything behind, do it yourself. No, he invited them into a community of people who were doing the same thing. That sense of belonging is so important to our faith, we actually wrote it into our values here at this church. We are community-oriented. Christianity is inevitably communal. To cling to Christ is to cling to his people. McLaren tells us in the end of this book, if your current form or your stage of Christianity is not giving you the space to continue your journey of growth as a human, then go find a new community. And if you can't find it, then build it. The, if you can find other people who are committed to the flourishing of others and the whole world, that's the kind of community worth committing to. But for me, for us, we already have that community. It's represented in this room tonight. 
you know, for better or worse, we're here. We keep showing up week after week and, you know, you, you bring your pain and your struggles and I'm going to bring my ball of knotted string and, and we're going to do it together, hopefully. You can trust that you aren't alone. So what, what does that mean for us? What next? What now? <clears throat> I think reading this book, I was reminded that not everybody has this. Not everyone has a space where they can show up. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. It's a cold season. Some people are languishing outside of the circles that they used to be in the center of. And I think now it's our turn to go and find those people and bring them in. <clears throat> the me who is still deconstructing is like, really cringes at that. Because <laughs> I don't mean it in a preachy way, like save your soul kind of way. I mean, come alongside somebody and remind them you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to struggle to follow Jesus alone. You don't have to struggle to be human alone. To bring it back to Mary, when her whole world upended, this is exactly what she did. She kicked off the very first advent by seeking out her people. Here's that picture. When she prayed the Magnificat, that, that prayer of rejoicing, do you know where she was? She's at Elizabeth's house. She'd gone to her cousin's house. Because Mary knew that when your world crashes down around you, you go find your people. You don't face it alone. And it reminded me of a season in my own life when I needed help from an Elizabeth. We are not shy about talking about mental health in this community. And uh, for me, one of my darkest seasons uh, followed the birth of my first child, Jack. He, um, <clears throat> he never slept. And it was winter, so it got dark at like 3.30 in the afternoon. And I just experienced a lot of isolation. And um, I was really overwhelmed. And then I found out I was pregnant again. And uh, my babies were going to be 16 months apart. And John was really thrilled. And I, couldn't, I just couldn't be happy. Um, I really struggled with it. And I just knew that I could count on other people to be happy for me until I could get there. And I really tried to will myself there, and I just couldn't do it. But then one day, uh, shortly after we found out I was at church, and this woman named Laura Mulliken just happened to mention that her kids, who were now grown, were 16 months apart. And she was talking about how good of friends they are, and it gave me hope. And then I talked to Mary Nichols, whose kids are a year apart, and she told me, you know, how beautiful it ended up being. And then when I got brave enough, I sat with this team, and Debbie and Patty looked at me in the eyes, and they were like, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. And they encouraged me and they reminded me that I wasn't alone. The darkness isn't as dark when somebody else just offers to walk alongside you. The burden is not as heavy when it's shared. So as we walk into this Advent season, can you be an Elizabeth for someone else? However it looks, whatever the circumstances, can you find somebody who needs somebody? And if you're the one in the untethered place, in the uncertainty, in the dark, in the doubt, can you accept the help that's offered? Can you find someone else's hand and just walk each other home? Can we stay human together? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are the kind of God who meets us exactly where we are, no matter what we're carrying, what feels heavy or dark, you just take us as we are and love us as we are. 
and whether or not we have answers or just a lot of questions. We are grateful that this is a place that we can come and belong. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Maggie. There's so much to think about in that message tonight. I really appreciated it. Appreciate your heart in that too, Maggie, and sharing your own story. And that whole idea of staying human and staying in community, that really is what it is all about. You know, we follow a God. We practice the ways of Jesus that was fully human. He walked this earth and he showed us exactly what it meant to be people that are about justice and that love kindness and that walk humbly. And the same Jesus is who we remember when we share in communion together, when we break bread together. And it's a space that we have that we can remember that we need to stay human, that we need to see the humanity in one another, that we need to stay in community together. I was thinking about something, Maggie, when you were speaking at the end. My daughter Kate right now is in school and she was talking about a book that she's reading and it was talking about how important it is to hold your kids just when you, when, um, you know, they're developing that whole attachment thing. And then she was talking about studies that have been done that when you look into their eyes and you spend time seeing them, that they are seen. You are seeing the humanity in them. They are knowing that they are loved and they belong. And I think that's what this space is about. It's a space to be seen, to be reminded that you're loved, to be reminded that you belong, to bring your knots right up front here when you take that bread and you dip it into the cup. So we invite you uh, forward during the music and there'll be people standing here and you can take the bread and dip it into the cup we're no longer doing the little cups, but we did have them somewhere if you still want to do that. Up, up there, right up front, if you would like to um, take that and bring it back to the pew on your own. But the night before Jesus died, he sat with his people, his community, and he broke bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. I see you. And he took the cup and after pouring wine into the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you. The new covenant. That inclusive covenant for everybody. So when we take that bread and we dip it in the cup, we bring our knots, we bring our struggles. We're reminded that we're loved. We're reminded that we are humans. We're reminded that this is so important, this community. Would you please stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.